You're listening to Fair Game with your host, Robert Smith. Well, welcome back to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Robert Smith. Today's guest has been a fair manager for three years and joins us today from Raleigh, North Carolina. This is North Carolina State Fair Manager Kent Yelverton. Kent, welcome to the show. How are you? Good afternoon, Robert. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad I could get you on the show today. You know, I've yet to actually perform in North Carolina, so I'm looking forward to getting to know you a bit and, and know more about your fair. Now, for our nine listeners, we're setting records. <laughs> could you give us some background on who you are and how you came to be the fair manager there in North Carolina? Be glad to. Uh, as you said, I've been at the fair for, for three years, but my history with the fair goes back 28 years. I've been with the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services since uh, for 28 years. The, the 17 years uh, previous, uh, prior to my coming to the fair, I was a director of property and construction and worked uh, at the fair uh, on capital improvement projects, major repairs, as well as real estate transactions. So I became very familiar with the fair uh, that way, but also with the, the size of our fair, the, the event is an all hands on deck. So the, the Department of Agriculture uh, puts the resources through the fair to make it successful. And I was fortunate enough to be a, a part of that for for my entire career with the department. And when our uh, previous manager retired, uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to get the opportunity to, to come to this great job. That's fantastic. Now, give us a little bit of information about your fair, when you guys run, what's your typical attendance look like? So we are uh, mid to late October. Uh, we run for 11 days, starting on Thursday, ending on Sunday. Our attendance uh, is just above or just below 1 million, depending on weather. Uh, in, in 2019, we were at 938, thanks to three days of not washout, but a forecast of washout. Uh, we are all certainly subject to the weather and the, the expectation of weather. Sure. So um, we, uh, as I say, we, we shoot for a million or a little over, and uh, that's where we usually land. Now, I know you guys being there at the end of October, you're kind of on the tail end of hurricane season. I know there have been times that uh, several years ago, the South Carolina State Fair kind of got, they got flooded out. Columbia was in real trouble. Do you guys run into that other than just some, you know, thunderstorm weather? Do you run into having to deal with hurricanes at the end of the season? So in 2018, uh, we and South Carolina, uh, Nancy Smith and I were talking about it as, as it came. Hurricane Michael shut us both down for the opening day of our 2018 events. Uh, so yes, we are subject to that. But we're, uh, our fair is also on the, the later side of the hurricane season. So most years we escape that, but, but it can happen. Yeah, I mean, I know this past year, the name, number of named storms was kind of, kind of got a little ridiculous. We we pay close attention to it in our home, even though we're out in New Mexico and completely safe from hurricanes. We pay attention to it because my wife's family lives in Biloxi, Mississippi. They're a mile and a half off the beach. And, you know, when you look back to, uh, what, 2005 with Hurricane Katrina, but for the railroad tracks that go down the middle of Biloxi that formed a natural levee, 
the whole penin Biloxi's on a peninsula, all of it would have been gone, but for those railroad tracks. So we watch those storms pretty darn closely. I'm curious yeah. though, if you storms aside, if you had a new family move to Raleigh and they called you up and they said, you know, hey Kent, we're uh, we're new to the fair we'd like to come out. We're new to the area. What do you recommend to them a day at the North Carolina State Fair looks like? Well, the first thing that we tell them, Robert, is to, to come out and enjoy all the, the free things that the, the fair offers. Once, once you pay to get in the gate and buy your advance tickets so that you do that cheaper, uh, we offer a lot of free entertainment, of course. Um, the exhibits, the agricultural experience. Uh, we have a we can entertain you for a day without uh, without any uh, additional expense. But uh, by the end of the day, you're you're going to be digging in your pocket to, to buy some food and and to do some of those other things. We uh, we have about 180 food vendors. Uh, we are we are known as a big food fair as as well as a big uh, amusement fair. So is there a food, speaking of that, that like is the signature food at the North Carolina State Fair? If this young new young family is going to show up, they have got to try this one item. Is there one of those? So I think uh, probably the one we're known for the most right now, uh, which originated here but has gone other places, is probably the Krispy Kreme burger. Uh, Krispy Kreme is a North Carolina product, and you stick a, ham a hamburger in a and use a Krispy Kreme donut as a uh, bun. You've you've got a Krispy Kreme burger. So, so that are, that originated in North Carolina. Yes. Well, that's fine. I, that's I. You know, I see this. I, I see it on signs, especially I go to like OC Fair or wherever I'm performing, yes. and there's always the giant sign. Um, you know, I think maybe Juicy sells it. There's a number of vendors that have it, yes. and I've always, you know, we. I look at some of this fair food and I go who came up with that sometimes it's really amazing sometimes <laughs> it's you can pass on it but the burger i tried once i think it was at la county and i was like i'm gonna try that one time because you can't, i can't really do it twice <laughs> you know what i mean in a, in a fair but it's in, really in good it's yeah, amazing in, to in, know where it is yeah 2019 they they did come out with a new version and that was using a salmon roll instead of a donut okay i'll take that too <laughs> <laughs> new twist I will, I'll definitely take that one. I, see, I can't, <clears throat> working in as an entertainer, where I'm exposed to fair food, you know, 30 weeks out of the year, 40 weeks out of the year, it, I can't eat fair food all the time. That's just not going to work. So I make, a, I make a deal with myself at every fair on the, the one of the two, the last nights of the fair, I will go get myself something from that fair to eat. Um, I've done the, that burger, the, the Krispy Kreme burger once that I think it was at LA County. Um, I, I got through like half of it. Cause it, that thing <laughs> That's is right. huge. Cause I don't think it's just one patty. If I remember it's like a double or triple, isn't it? I mean, it's a monstrous. Well, and the, and the good thing about, uh, working on staff is we'll go buy one of those things and get a knife out and, <laughs> and get an opportunity as a taste of it. Uh, Everybody gets a couple of bites yeah. of it. <laughs> exactly well that's that's the but, way to go with it um, i do agree with you on the uh, fair food we we certainly have to limit ourselves over 11 days but it's always fun to tell people because uh they find it surprising i think you could ask all of my staff and we lose weight there in the fair because of the miles we put in yeah <laughs> we we can eat and burn it off uh, pretty good how many acres is your grounds 
So the main fairgrounds uh, that holds the the fair is a 150. Okay. Our total property is about 330. That's a uh, good size. Yeah, we uh, we have a, a horse uh, facility that is adjacent, as well as our primary campground is is outside of that 150. Got it. So let's shift gears here and take a peek back at 2020, even though it's really not the best year to take you a uh, peek back at. Um, so take us back. You're planning for your event early in the year, mid-March. You know, Houston cancels, which, of course, unfortunately, we just, you know, we're recording February 4th. They just announced yesterday that their 21 show is now canceled. Um, so we're starting to kind of get around that time again where we're it's it's a year in we're we're back to where we started what point in 2020 did you realize this was going to have a real serious impact on our industry so yesterday when we heard about houston really did bring it back robert because it was houston a year ago that i think opened my eyes and and many of us in the industry's eyes to to how serious this was to to close uh, the event of that size as it was going on was just yeah. unthought of. Um, but uh, we we have a very robust interim event calendar. We we do over 500 events a year. And as we were hearing about Houston, as uh, the the coronavirus was being declared a a pandemic, a global pandemic. We had a international festival in, in our largest event building that was set up and ready to open. And they had to make the decision not to open. Um, so that was difficult, uh, working with them to make that decision. At that point, it was there were it was us making decision or, or rather the promoter making this decision because there were no regulations out at that point. There were no restrictions. It was figure this out for yourself. Yep. Um, the things that a promoter has to think about at a time like that, they may have only one or two events a year. In that situation, it is a, um, a, a cultural nonprofit that depends on that event for their funding. And if they cancel, they don't know when they'll be able to come back. But at the same time, if they go forward and, and people get sick, or, or even if they uh, suffer from public opinion for going forward, the damage can be much greater than the financial. So that's, that's what we dealt with in the, those first few days. And really, in, in the first phase of this uh, pandemic, that's what a lot of time was spent, just talking and counseling with events, deciding what was best for them. Sure. Now you guys run later in October, and this was, you know, we're looking at March 2020 at this point, were there hopes early on, it seems to be a consistent theme of people I've interviewed on the podcast that, you know, maybe by June or July, this thing gives up and, and we get back to normal. Absolutely. When it first started, we, you know, you got that little feeling in the, in the back of your mind of what if, but no, we, we had no idea that that October would be impacted at that point. We were, we were dealing with the, with the crisis of the day with the, the people that were, were having to make those shorter term decisions. It was some months into it that, that things really started to become clear that uh, 
our October event was at risk. Yeah. And, and eventually you guys, you know, you're, you're holding out hope, but eventually you get to the end of July and the clock runs out. Um, looking at your decision to cancel, I'm curious, was that done because of the state of the pandemic at the time in North Carolina, or was it more akin to what I think Jerry Hammer from Minnesota State Fair said, where your event just ran out of runway to get off the ground? We ran out of runway. Um, if uh, any of our events, certainly Jerry's, uh, ours, you, you have a lot of contracts involved. And you, you can't cancel those contracts on a moment's notice. Right. You've got to look at how far out. And I think if you look at the larger fairs, you'll see that most of us were pretty consistent in how far out from our opening date that we canceled. Um, and, and we were looking at a range of, of how far out we felt like, how close we felt like we could get before we made that final decision. And we were approaching dates where funds would have been committed, uh, where contracts would have required payments that would have been non-refundable. It would have been uh, on top of not having a fare, it would have been another financial uh, impact to the fare. So we ran out of runway. Uh, I like to say that in the end, uh, as, as, as July came and as July was passing, our announcement was on July 29th. Certainly in that last two weeks, there wasn't a decision to be made, Robert. It, the decision was there. It was just a matter of us announcing it. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. in the time frame that we had to make that decision, there was no option to go forward. We did a lot of work uh, trying to find a way to go forward, being prepared if there were any changes that opened up opportunities that we could take advantage of. But at that time frame that we absolutely had made that decision, there was no path forward. Yeah, can completely understand that. You get to the point where, um, like you say, the decision was made. Um, it was just a matter of you guys really having to acknowledge it. And you did that on July 29th. In that moment when the decision gets made and it, you, it finally sinks in, what's the feeling amongst you and your staff that – this event you work so hard on is now gone. Yes. So I, I think I personally went through that about two weeks before the announcement. Um, once I knew, once I was talking to, to my management, uh, letting them know what, what we had to do and, and starting to make plans for when and how that would occur, I, I went through that uh, through those emotions myself, uh, which helped. And that when announcement day came, I felt like I was in better position to, to help those around me. Um, the, the cancellation of a state fair impacts a tremendous number of people. Uh, we're uh, very sensitive to the economic driver that we are from the individuals that are employed at the fair to the small businesses, the nonprofit organizations, the, the carnival, the entertainers, the vendors. So many people depend on uh, the fair for, uh, for financial gain. But 
Um, and the group that I was most sensitive to and most concerned about was my staff. Um, that uh, when I met, I met with my staff the, the morning that we canceled, uh, they had not been told. Uh, certainly some knew, some had been involved in a preparation, but, but we had not made a general announcement to staff. And uh, our cancellation occurred exactly 75 years from the last time a state fair had been canceled. So uh, the last time was in 1945 for, for World War II, of course. And uh, 75 years later in 2020, we're, we're canceling a fair. And, and I told my, my staff that I, I very much could, Dr. Sibley uh, Thornton, who our signature building on the property is named for, Dorton Arena, was the fair manager in 1945. And I told my staff that I could, I could imagine that, uh, that Dr. Dorton stood in front of his staff very much like I was that morning. We were out in our open uh, grandstand properly spaced so that we could uh, could pull them together safely. But I told them that I knew that Dr. Dorton had a dedicated staff that, that loved to produce an agricultural exposition and entertainment piece that visitors look forward to every year, just like they did and that it hurt to, to share with them the decision that we we had made and would be announcing that day. It's a really difficult decision. The, universally, everyone I've spoken to, um, it's been heartbreaking for the staff um, to have Absolutely. to lose that. And I know in some cases, the layoffs have been in furloughs because you know, we're a different ball of wax in this industry. This isn't, uh, you know, a, a large corporate industry where you've got thousands of, of basically faceless employees. These are our, these are friends and, and family. What did you guys have to face in the way of furloughs? So on, on July the 29th, uh, I met with staff in that grandstand to share with them the news that we would be uh, canceling the fair. The same time, 24 hours later, I met with them in that same grandstand to tell them that we would be furloughing employees. Uh, we are a self-supporting um, entity of, of state government. Uh, and over the course of that day on July the 30th, we, we met with all 82 employees and we furloughed two thirds. Um, and we are at that same staffing level today. Uh, we uh, furloughed 54 people. Uh, and uh, today we have a staff of 25 on site. We are holding uh, interim events. We, we do have events most every weekend, certainly not at the, the same level, uh, either by number or by size as a normal year but we're very proud that we are able to, to move forward with some of those events. Many of them are retail type events, consumer shows that are able to operate under uh, retail rules uh, for, for COVID-19. But um, it's been very difficult. Canceling a fair was hard, furloughing staff was harder. Yeah. Um, with the, the, 
fair families or fair employees, fair industry is, is often referred to as a family. And certainly the, the nuclear family is that staff and nobody gets into to this industry. Nobody works uh, 25 hour days during uh, the event that doesn't have it in their blood. And uh, it, um, we, we let staff know that the event would be canceled. We gave them the, the 24 hours to, to deal with that and, and then hit them with even worse news the next day. Yeah. That's, um, man, my heart breaks for so many people in this industry. You said, though, that you're able to start to be having some events um, on the grounds, so obviously smaller capacity than what you would typically have. Yes. When were you able to start doing that? Because I know for, you know, here in New Mexico, that's a, the only thing going on down at Expo New Mexico is is the testing and, and vaccination site. So we, uh, we started back with events uh, late June, early July. Um, you know, we, many of our promoters are not able to move forward uh, for, for various reasons. Um, their, their vendors are unable to come. Their, their supply chain issues with some industries that they keep them from being able to come. Uh, there are at-risk populations in many of these events that, that keep them from able, being able to move forward. But the ones that have moved forward have, have been uh, successful. They have, have kept themselves afloat by having events. Um, and we, we've been very proud to, to be able to host those. We, we are aware of no on-site community spread at any of our events. Um, the, um, the, the promoters are, are very thankful for that opportunity. We also have a year-round uh, flea market on our property called Raleigh Market. They reopened about mid-July and have been operating continuously since. Uh, providing their vendors an opportunity to, to do business. We're, just like many of the other fairgrounds, Robert, we are a, an economic driver year-round. And you've got the promoters that depend on these uh, events to, to do their livelihood. They have limited opportunities in a year to, to do that. But also within those shows, all of this, the small businesses that that depend on that showcase for business. And many of them, that is their primary means of marketing. And if that is shut off, then maybe they're able to do their business, but their their marketing plan is, is gone. So uh, yeah, we have been very hard and have been successful in having a number of those events. Well, I'm glad you've been able to do that because it, it gets incredibly difficult when you know when you think about the number of events that our fairgrounds host. And we've spoken about it over and over again on the show. So many people in our community, they see that Ferris wheel lit up for, you know, a week to 10 nights, 12 nights a year. And they think that that's it for the fair. They don't realize just how far reaching into the community our fairgrounds are and the events right. that we put on are. You know, you think about just that little flea market you guys have, the number of people that are making a living off that, that are generating, you know, marketing and and leads for their business sure. literally even you know coming out to whether it's the fair or you do a home show or an rv show or 
you know, someone's going to get new floors for their home and they go to a fairgrounds for that type of, of show where they see it all on display, where these businesses can generate these leads and then get people back to their showrooms and, and generate revenue and, and build a business. And that's what we're all, you know, we all do this, um, you know, well, in, emer in emergency situations, you talk about when you've got, you know, flooding or, or, you know, risk of hurricane, you've got people in North Carolina. You, you, I mean, you said you had a, you know, horse facilities that if they need to get their livestock out of the way of a flood, you, our fairgrounds across this country are, are where they go. Absolutely. We, we, we are known to the community. We are, the community looks to us. Uh, and along those lines, we've also done some, and uh, we announced today uh, a drive-through dinosaur exhibit. Uh, we're, we're trying to offer the community an opportunity where we can to, to get out and do something safely. Yeah. Um, we've got a 45-piece uh, animatronic uh, dinosaur exhibit that will be coming February 18th through 28th. Um, stay in the car, perfectly safe. Um, so we look forward and, and enjoy doing things like that as well. We've had some drive-through food events uh, during our fair dates uh, in October of 20. We had we did hold our junior livestock show. Uh, it was spread out over the 11 days that would have been our fair dates where in a normal year, that portion of the show happens in about three or four days. Uh, but we also did a walk-up uh, walk-up food event uh, during that time as well for 22 vendors that would have been at the fair, and they did very well. And and for many of them, they told us that that saved their year, so that they can be on the road and and ready to go in 21. Sure. Well, and I'm glad you got the junior livestock show. And the one consistency I saw, <clears throat> excuse me, last year as the fair started canceling when I'd, I'd see the announcement on Facebook and I'd go through the comments and, you know, nobody was like, well, what about the magician or what, or what about the, the juggler? <laughs> you know, they were all out there going, what about the kids in, in the 4-H and the FFA and their livestock show? What are we doing for them? Um, I think it's very clear that's a very um, important core of our mission really in the fair industry in agricultural education and um, I was glad to see that so many fairs were able to make some adjustments and get some you know exemptions or whatnot they needed um, from their state and local governments to be able to do those shows. In our case Robert uh, with our financial situation and certainly with with the understanding that we had so many employees that uh, were, were furloughed we, we were not in position to financially support that show. So we went to the livestock community and we said we would love to host this show. We would love to have it for the kids uh, so that they can have the experience. They had already started those projects. Those, those kids were already raising those animals for, to bring them to the fair. And that community responded. Uh, we, we came out, we announced the show. Uh, we said that we cannot tell you that there will be any premiums paid. We're simply holding this show for for the youth to have that experience. By the end, by the time the show came um, and we paid all expenses, we still paid out $160,000 in, in premiums to those youth. Uh, and that is absolutely a tribute to the, 
the sponsors, the the livestock industry that that stepped up and said, we won't make this happen for those years. That's terrific. Um, let's talk about your 2021 fair. Uh, you're still in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> how So how do you go about planning for this October when you've got, you know, such a reduced staff and yes. you, you still got to plan the event? How do you go about doing that? So uh, part of that, of course, is balancing the the money and the the balance in the in the banking account, and when we can start to bring some staff back, uh, so that um, we we do ramp up in that area. But we have uh, we've already started having some some planning sessions in house. We've we've got some ideas that we are are moving forward with planning on. Uh, it's fun just to sit around. A, table uh, six foot apart and talk about it now and and to talk about it in a way that that we're optimistic that we'll be able to carry those plans out are we out of the woods do, do we know what our fair is going to look like um no uh i look at the vaccine uh, at the shots and arms reports every day and and look for that number to go up uh, certainly a certain percentage of the population has to get vaccinated as well as that consumer confidence has to get built back so that people are comfortable coming out, so that people are uh, comfortable being in a crowd. We have areas on our fair, we on our fairgrounds where it is certainly shoulder to shoulder. Uh, on our busiest days, we'll have 150, 160,000 people on the grounds. And um, that was part of our process in 2020. We simply came to the conclusion that scaling our event would be nearly impossible. Yeah. Uh, if 2021 comes about, uh, we're we're revisiting that and and making a plan that uh, we feel like we can pivot up or down. Uh, as I've heard other managers say, we're we're planning for a middle of the road fair with the ability to to accommodate uh, whatever we see uh, coming at that. Uh, 120 or 90 day period before that we can, can make those changes that we need to to, to accommodate uh, what we see. If if the vaccine is widely distributed and people are looking to get out, it could be one of the, the biggest years ever. Uh, with, with our fair coming so late in the year, we certainly have an advantage. Um, but at the same time, if the vaccine rollout is is not speedy and and uh, is not hitting us at a certain level, then we know that we can anticipate that attendance being down. I've got to look at the numbers. I've got to look at what different levels of attendance mean to us in terms of revenues that we can use to put on the fair and make that fair experience that our visitors Fact, we're, we are not going to put on a North Carolina State Fair that people come to and, and don't get an experience that they, uh, that they will remember for a long time. Well, you have to, you know, focus on protecting your brand in the middle of all this because, Absolutely. you know, it's not going to do you much good if you say, oh, yeah, we had a 2021 fair. We were down 45 percent in attendance. And because of that, we could only give people, you know half the fare they're used to. And now the, the 55% who came out are annoyed with us that everybody loses if you do that. That's right. Now, you know, being the state fair, we have uh, about 40 county fairs in North Carolina and 
I think I probably had that conversation with all 40 of those uh, last summer as they were making their decisions. Um, but the smaller fairs certainly have very difficult decisions to make in protecting their ability to, to hold future fairs, but yet just uh, the determination of, of those small fairs and in many time and many instances of uh, volunteers who just were determined they were gonna have a fair and not have a, a break in their traditional uh, 50 years of fairs or, or whatever, but sometimes it just does not make sense uh, and you have to protect uh, what you have and can go and go on to the next year. Yep. That was one of the cancellations we had late in the year. Uh, one of our November fairs that canceled um, back in September when the fair manager called me, he said, you know, we're just, we're looking at our modeling. And if, uh, you know, if we're down, I forget his numbers, 40, 40 to 50%, we're going to lose this much money. And it's at that point, we almost become insolvent. It's better to, you know, fold and, try again in, in 2021 and, and hope it works. If you don't spend the money for the expenses, in most cases, you're, you're much better off to, to save that money for the next year if the attendance is gonna be down that much. I, and that's certainly not the question any of the fairs that move forward in 2020 and congratulations to them. Yep. But that, that model did not work for us. Yeah, and it's everybody's community is a little different. I think um, you know we were talking before the show. It felt like um, the the West Texas kind of um, come and take it attitude was going on, and that's why I think Abilene happened and the North Texas Fair happened, and they did so successfully. That's just not going to be everybody's community, and, and every fair is in a different financial position and has to make sure that um, you know, especially if they are. Um, a fair that's using that is, has any public funding, they have to be good stewards of that money and going out and, and spending all of it and then losing most of it, not recouping it is, is bad juju for everybody. So I, um, I applaud everyone who faced this decision and, and made it, whether they had a fair or they decided to, you know, push back from the table and fold. My gut feeling is I'm kind of with you. It, depending on vaccine distribution, we could see the needle start to pull back in our favor in this industry, maybe around midsummer. The only question is, um, is it in time? Do you have, as Jerry Hammer said, do you have enough runway to get the event off the ground? Either way, I really feel like as we get to this time, you know, early 2022 and middle of 22, things are really going to be, hopefully by then, really opening and coming back to normal. Um, Jeremy Parsons, when I interviewed him, you know, from Clay County and, and Spencer, Iowa said that their 21 fair, they are planning it in such a way that it becomes basically the life raft that gets them to 2022. And I think yeah. that's kind of uh, across the industry. That's what, uh, what we're seeing is that when you're talking to other fair managers, is that the idea? Absolutely. Uh, as I say, we're, you know, our, Pivot point is going to be about the same time we made the decision last year. Uh, up until that time, I will certainly hold out that that being as late in the year as we are, that we can we can be the fair in 2021 that that has a real a full scale fair and a, and a full attendance. Um, and that's what I'm going to plan for and be prepared for. But uh, yes, uh, in reality, uh, we, we've got to get through 21 to get to 22, whatever 21 brings. 
Yeah. So are you guys still looking at kind of a mid to late July as your, your heart out for a decision? Yes. Yeah. Our, and that puts us right at the 90 day uh, window. And, and I think for a fair, our size, uh, 90 days is about where that decision's got to fall pretty close. Well, sure. And then you get into the point where not only do some of those contracts are coming due that you got to start making payments on them, but you got your marketing budget, you know, your, all your right. ad revenue that has to start getting spent. And if you're, you know, if you're going to pull the plug on it, my God, better to do it before those dollars get spent. My heart breaks for Miami, you know, for what yes. and so many fairs dealt with last year were, I mean, Miami was like 15 or 20 minutes from opening. The lights were on, right. the Ferris wheel was moving, they were ready to go. And the how County Health said, you're done. You can't well, recoup and, that and money. Certainly. That's right. And and for, for people like yourself, Robert, we, we owe a, a good notice to to the entertainers and the, the vendors so that um, travel arrangements and supplies and those things, uh, once, once money is spent, it, in many cases, and we saw this in 2020 with, with some events, money was spent and it without a means to recoup it. Yeah. And we certainly don't want to put our partners in that position. Yeah, my sense is in talking to some entertainment people and talking to some agents that there may be um, some adjustment on contracts moving forward that um, I, I don't know what the process could look like, whether it's a stepped contract or something that at least if you're an entertainer that has spent several thousand dollars, you know, in airfare and whatnot to get to that point where you're, you know, at the fair, if there is that cancellation that at least some of that money may be able to get recouped, I don't know where all those chips are going to fall. I was lucky in that traditionally with me, probably 90% of my work comes between the first week of July and, and the end of October. I, I usually have only one or two. I think one year I had three fairs down in Florida in the spring. It's, that's rare that I get all that much. So, you know, for me this year, we were opening it in Sydney at the Sydney Royal Easter show down in Australia. And, and we were honestly, just because of the international travel, we were with March 11th when Houston said they were canceling Sarah and I are looking at each other going, are like, how long do we wait we're looking at the Sydney the situation down in Sydney, and we had decided that we were going to give it about a, another four or five days, and then we were going to make the decision. Well, right on the 13th of March, I think it was 13th of March, maybe the 12th, we get the email from Linnell that says, you know, they've had to cancel it. And so it, it just for us, it, had that fair been in Texas, I wouldn't have worried about it <laughs> because I'd have right. been driving six or eight hours to it. But <laughs> You, I didn't you want to still be in Australia now. Yeah, I mean, I didn't <laughs> want to fly across the the planet. And what happens if if Sydney close if Australia closes their borders while we're in the air? Then exactly. Do we get stranded at customs? Do they decide turn around and put us down in Hawaii? Do they divert to I don't know, <laughs> like all those unknowns. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, and Marla, uh, I, when I interviewed her, she felt the same way because even for her, I think she'd said um, she was down in Sydney for a, 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 a speech she was given, I guess, in January. And that's when she really started to realize it was for most of us, it was mid-March when Houston canceled. But yeah. she started to see things in January because she saw what was going on down in Australia. And she even acknowledged on the show that she was worried that she would be able to get out of the country. And then if she did what was going to happen when she got in the U S was she going to be forced to quarantine, you know, in Los Angeles for two weeks before she could move. Right. So 
I, I, as much as I desperately wanted to go to Sydney, I mean, that would have been a really cool show. And I've spoken with Linnell. We'll still do it at some point down the road. Um, I'm so glad I didn't get stuck in all that. I mean, what a mess that would have been. Well, and I'll, I will tell you, we, we are looking at all those contract things because we do want to move forward with our planning. We want to be able to, to lock things in, but I've got to be good stewards of, of the finances, but I also have got want to be fair to to the vendors and the entertainers and so forth. So we're looking at language that will work for both of us so that we can plan our year and and anticipate uh, what would happen and what could happen under different scenarios. Uh, so that is one thing we're working hard on as well. Well, I know you guys on your side talk a lot and certainly the entertainers within our circles talk a lot. And, um, you know, it, I see there's some concern with me that uh, that I'm seeing that there are there are a handful of performers out there that are um, a little less patient, <laughs> shall we say, than others. And, um, you know, for so many of us, the answer is just we make a living in this industry. I, I need your fare to be even though I haven't worked with your fare. I need your fare to be healthy for me right. to even have a shot, whether it's this year, next year, five years, 10 years from now. I need this industry to be healthy. Um, and so I think from the entertainment side, from the concessionaire side, we just need patience and empathy. And, and, you know, I know a number of performers that have, have put performing to the side, obviously was, you know, forced because of quarantine, but they've gone and gotten jobs at, I mean, anywhere from truck driving to home Depot, to, you know, Best Buy, wherever they can get some work right now, just to keep their heads above water. And then the good news for a lot of those performers is for the overwhelming majority of them, their shows are sitting in storage. Their shows are sitting in their garage or, or in right. a storage lot, and there's minimal overhead. The ones that breaks my heart for the, the pig races and the sea lion shows and the animal acts, that those animals still need veterinary care, and they still need to be fed. They still There's a lot of overhead there. So yes. I, um, I'm very hopeful that they'll be able to, to make it back. You know, I mean, there's just so much negative that's happened in the last 10 months. I don't want the podcast to be a total downer here. So let's look at some positives here. <laughs> what are you seeing happen in our industry? That's, that's a good sign. That's kind of maybe a light at the end of the tunnel. I think, um, hmm. This, the pandemic has given us all time to, to step back and reflect. Um, we, we all, uh, want to to do things with our fares. We all want to look at changes. Um, this gives us a chance to to maybe spend a little bit more time with that. Um, we have a a new generation that we need to figure out how to entertain. We need to figure out how to get them out to the fairgrounds. Um, I don't know that we have figured that out, um, but we're working on it. And uh, you've, I'm sure you've been in many conversations as I have and how we keep this industry as viable tomorrow as it is today, how we have the opportunity to educate uh, the, the young people on agriculture and how we give uh, people an opportunity to experience things that they're not going to experience unless agricultural fairs are, are viable and, and available to them. And uh, that's what, what I've encouraged my staff and what I'm trying to do is spend time looking at the long-term. Uh, this is a, a short-term uh, problem. It is a big problem. 
as I say, I've got 54 people that, that don't come to, to work every day and, and, and don't have paychecks. Um, but this is a 150 plus year institution that I'm responsible for. And I'm looking at the next 150 years and, and making sure that we're ready for that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you have to, you have to look at the long term, and um, I, I think we get so focused, narrowly focused on what's happening in the bubble around us that we forget to look through history for, for answers. One of the questions I've heard a lot of, you know, my wife's an assistant principal, and she's heard it from staff members and from parents is, do you think we'll ever go back to normal? And without even blinking, she says, yes. Well, how do you know that? Because after the 1918 pandemic, we went back to normal. You know, after World War One, after World War Two, we went back to normal. After Vietnam, after 9-11, we come back. We are a resilient species. We have survived an awful long time making comebacks, and we'll come back from this. So, Robert, if we come back as normal in, it, in its form before the pandemic, without making changes that we've learned in this, then that's a mistake. We need, right. we need right. to take lessons from this. We need to come back better and stronger than we went into it. Um, I, I have that fear of the pandemic being over and things returning to normal and, and looking behind me and, and regretting that I, I didn't take the opportunity to, to make improvements that, uh, the, that I had an opportunity to make. I like the way you put that. And, and I'm going to, when we're done on this, I'm going to go uh, chat with Sarah about that, because that's a really good answer. When someone says, do you think we'll ever go back to normal? The answer needs to be no, but we are going to come back better. Yes. And I think that's a great way of looking at it. Um, it it's gone around Facebook. There's these memes that go around that say something to the effect of, if you're the same person after the pandemic that you were before the pandemic, then you messed up. And I agree you wasted, with that. You wasted a lot of time. And um you know, I know for me, there've been some, some quietly, some personal changes I've made that I haven't articulated a lot to anybody. Cause frankly, they don't need to be articulated to anybody. It just needs to be something that I know about and I'm doing. And I think anything we can do to, I mean, how many people out there have always said, Oh, I wish I had the time to learn Spanish. I wish I had the time to read more. I wish I had the time to play with my kids more. I wish I had the well, <laughs> you've been given, you know, we are now uh, looking at my calendar um, about 11 months into 15 days to flatten the curve. So that's right. Uh, it's been a stressful 11 months, but time has been there um, for a lot of us. And I think um, I think we're such a busy society. It gets it's been it's almost uncomfortable at times that we we have this much time on our hands. I mean, have you you're still working, but do you find that the additional time is almost for a little bit was almost uncomfortable because you're so used to working at a fever pitch? I'm not seeing that so much, Robert, because I'm still coming to the office every day. We still have our staff here. We, we've done a lot of telecommuting, uh, but our operations staff has to be on the fairgrounds every day. That's the only place they can do their job. And um, so in, in many ways, my, my life has been more normal than, than many of those that I know and are in other careers. But um, yes, it's uh, certainly to, to not stop, to not think about what this means, to not, not think about what uh, we can come out of this uh, those, those personal um, development uh, ideas that you've 
done with yourself. You may not articulate those to me right now, but people will see them. I'll see them in the future. Uh, you'll benefit from them. Those people around you will benefit from them. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's been a really, um, as stressful as it's been, it's been a golden opportunity to, to make some improvements and look at some, some changes. And I think for fairs too, you know, I've spoken to a number of fair managers who said, you know, one of the most, and this is usually communicated off the air, but the, one of the most frustrating things for fair managers they find is they have board members that say, well, we need to do it this way. Okay. Well, why? Because we've always done it that way. Well, this has been the, the little silver lining for a lot of, of fair managers that, that I've spoken with that they've confided in me quietly has been the boards don't get to say, well, we've always done it that way because we've now been forced to change. And in some cases, the boards are coming back to the fair manager going, why didn't we think about doing it that way? Why didn't we, you know, maybe they've looked at, um, I, you know, I've spoken with people, everything from how they park cars to how their people are moving through the yes. fairgrounds, Absolutely. all these little things. And they're going, we should have done that 10 years ago. Well, it, it's really easy to get blinders on when you have a, you have something that works, you know, you have something like the North Carolina state fair that works so well, it gets a million people and you never think, but if we made some changes, could we get to 1.1? Could we get to 1.2? Right. Could we do 1.3? Um, so I think it's been a real, yeah. a, a real growing opportunity for all of us in the fair. And it, it, this is not a market that we get into. Let's be clear. None of us are making millions of dollars and living the high life, the, the celebrity high life in this industry. This is a, a passion-driven industry. So I'm curious, what's the thing about the fair industry that you're passionate about that fills you up and makes it worth all the hard work? I'm uh, Thanks to, to my late father, I'm a people watcher. And nothing makes me more happy than to, to go out uh, on our busiest day and, and walk the midways and look at the, the people, look at the children, look at their faces and know that I had a part in those smiles and, and those experiences that they're having. That, that's what drives me. Yeah, I, I agree. It's for me, um, you know, when I do the Conjure Fortune Machine, one of the, my favorite moments is they come up to me, they hear a silly audio fortune, audio animatronic fortune says something goofy and they laugh, but then I hand them the fortune card and the fortune cards all have something meaningful written on them. And I will watch as the next person comes up to me, I'll see out of the corner of my eye, the person that just left stop dead in their tracks and look back <laughs> at me like, how did you know I needed to hear this in my life? Right. And then that picture ends up on Instagram where I'm tagged in it and you know, some 17 year old high school kid she's got it on her mirror in her bathroom so she can look at it every day and remind herself of that positive message that for me that's what i'm like i may only see that guest for about 40 or 50 seconds right but it could be 40 seconds that has a lasting impact the same with anything you know you might have a kid that walks through the um, the ag barn and, and gets inspired and decides he wants to have a career in the in farming and ranching i mean we right. we make happy. We make people happy. We make dreams right. happen for people. We what are better job than to make people happy. That's it, man. You know, when and it's funny if you look at if you look at go back and look at Disney. My wife and I, I bring this up from time to time because my wife and I met working on the Disney College program down in Orlando in 2000. When you look at at businesses and what their goals are and how they define success, 
a lot of them, it's about, we want to be the innovator of this and that and, and can, you know, dominate the stock market and blah, blah, blah. You ask Disney, what was his goal in building Disneyland and building Disney World? He wanted to build a place where families could have fun together. Yes. Full stop. And he knew that if he delivered that, the money was a foregone conclusion. Mm-hmm. You know, back to something you said a few minutes ago. Um, so many businesses, so many entertainment businesses get stuck, and this is the way we've always done it. I try not to give my staff many rules and coming up with ideas and presenting ideas to me. But three years ago, in the first staff meeting, I told my staff that was one sentence I would not hear them say in front of me and they don't good and that has has led to some good things um we do need to be open-minded we do need to realize that things do change as a as i said earlier i know you know that fairs have to um make themselves into uh what the audience needs um the uh this generation, the, the younger generation, they're not entertained the same way as, as I was or you were. Yep, and we've yep. got to recognize that. What's something you know now as a fair manager that would have been helpful to know when you started in this industry? <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I, I was fortunate to have been as close to it as I was before, uh, before I came here as manager. Um, certainly, um, while I knew a lot of the behind the scenes, I knew a lot of what went into it. I was what, uh, state fair staff affectionately referred to as 11 day warrior in some ways that, that I came from the downtown office and spent 11 days at the fair. Uh, they certainly saw me more than many, uh, in, in doing construction projects, but but still, there, there are a lot of things that until you're in the, um, the day-to-day, year-round planning and um, uh, getting things ready for, for the fair, that you, you can't imagine all that goes into it. And uh, while I knew a lot of it, I, I've learned a lot about what goes into a fair and, and what the people that are dedicated to making that happen. I like to say that uh, while our staff does so much to put on a fair, uh, it takes us about three weeks to to set up our fair. And it's amazing to walk around and watch that. We've got hundreds of people on our payroll, but that's just a drop in the bucket of those thousands of people that are working for the hundreds of businesses that are getting ready to come out here and and be ready for the visitors, the carnival, the vendors, the entertainers, hundreds of people setting up booths and and cleaning and getting uh, decorated and just getting things ready for company. Uh, yep. That's yep. one part of what we do. Yeah, I, I know I enjoy it. And speaking of, of entertainers, I'm curious, uh, as we're going to start kind of wrapping it up here, when you're at fair conventions like IFE, when you're wandering around the trade show, what is it that typically catches your eye about an entertainer or an attraction? Something different. Um, always trying to to offer uh, our visitors something different. We uh, we're all on a limited entertainment budget. 
we we want to provide our our guests that that free entertainment that that's something that they'll remember we're always looking for something that will will draw that crowd will will make those children uh, their eyes light up and um their their gasp and uh, we we want to have people amazed and entertained and and to see something that that they're not going to see anywhere else, and and certainly our industry uh, offers that, and, and it is fun to to look through what's available and and make those decisions. Yeah, I'm glad I'm on my side of the uh, of the aisle of that trade show because <laughs> I walk around usually the first day of the show in the say 30 minutes to an hour before we open. I'll wander around and get an idea of who's where, even if they're not in the booth. I see the their backdrops and I know who's who because inevitably someone comes up and says, Robert, I'm trying to find such and such a pig race. Do you know where they're at? <laughs> um, and so, but it's it's got to be overwhelming on your end walking up and down those aisles at a trade show. So tell the truth now, on day three of the IFB trade show, is your badge facing forwards or backwards? <laughs> <laughs> and you laugh because you know what I'm talking about. The, the fair side of the equation did not know that the entertainment side of the equation knew that. <laughs> Who told no. you our secret? We've known for a lot of years. It's not a secret. <laughs> How about this, Robert? Can you imagine being a member of the general public that wanders into that space? <laughs> we, we used to get stopped in las vegas like we you know as we finish it for the day and we're all heading back to our rooms to change or whatever and get ready for the uh, you know ed sessions or the nightly activities that i watch people stop there's because it's like there's a pirate there's a walking dinosaur there's a, there's a robot and people are just stopping going what is happening here and even in Las Vegas, imagine how they feel in San Antonio. <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, when you walk out on the street corner and here's a, a pirate standing on, on, you know, stilts riding a chicken or something, and people are just looking like, what is going on here? So listen, I appreciate you being on the show. Before we go, everyone on the show goes through a little series of speed round questions. So I'm going to ask you a handful of questions. Uh, and actually, I just got this new deck of cards. They're called Pod Decks. Of course, on Facebook, as soon as I started posting that I was doing the podcast, <clears throat> all the ads on, on my feed became, buy this new microphone, buy this new set of headphones, check out this <laughs> podcasting equipment. Uh, and this was this deck of cards um, was one of them. And I kind of I did, some, did a little background on it. I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. We'll see what that does. So um, there's 50 questions in here. And I'm just going to flip through the stack. And I'm oh, going to ask you five or six of them and and you give me your best answer you ready i'll try all right uh have you ever accidentally texted the wrong person and how did it turn out uh yes and um i believe uh, i believe i was able to uh find an explanation that worked <laughs> <laughs> okay next question uh, which living person do you most admire? Hmm. Uh, I don't think I have a good answer for that. That's, um, there are a lot of people I admire. Um, certainly, uh, I lost my mother a year and a half ago, and, uh, that's certainly who I would have, uh, uh answered at that point, uh, raising three boys, but, uh, 
We will. Ex- a good, I don't think I have a good answer for that now. Well, we will accept your mother as the answer. We will always <laughs> accept mom as an acceptable answer. Uh, let's see here. We'll go. Uh, who or where would you haunt if you were a ghost? Ooh, um, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, it's got to be uh, something back uh, many years ago in high school. <laughs> I was going to think if somebody it was me, I'd be like, "There's got to be an old high school, high school days, an old high school science it. teacher, or somebody that right. needs to get haunted." <laughs> All right. Uh, next, I've had next. no bad bosses, so I had to go back to high school. The, or maybe a it. few college professors. I'll take <laughs> it. If you could, uh, if you could have anything named after you, what would it be? <laughs> um. So uh, we have a building here at the state fairgrounds that is is named after. Uh, um, Governor Jim Martin, and at the time we built that in 2005 and, and named it after him, uh, and he, he was here for the, the ceremony, um, we had quite a bit of fun with that because it's a restroom with about 80 uh, facilities in it, and we had a, a, a great bit of fun uh, giving uh, the former governor a hard time about the biggest bathroom in North Carolina being named after him, but if you're a fair manager, and you receive the complaints every year about uh, not having enough facilities on the fairgrounds. I think there's a lot of pride in having a bathroom named after you. <laughs> I would take it. I mean, of course, I know right now as my entertainer friends are listening to this, they're saying, well, Robert would want to be named on a bathroom because he's full of crap, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Okay, last one. Uh, interesting. If you could sing a duet with anyone, who would it be? Well, uh, first of all, uh, anyone who had a voice would run the other way and won't know part of that. Same. Um, assuming you could sing. <laughs> assuming I could assuming sing. You could, maybe so I need to preface that. In, in 2019, um, uh, we had Charlie Daniels here at the State Fair. And that was uh, the year before he passed away. Yep. And that was a very memorable moment. Uh, we had a, a great crowd, a very uh, into it crowd and, and a great concert. So if I had opportunities to share a stage with anybody, it, it would have been the late uh, Charlie Daniels. Good answer. I'll take that one for sure. Kent, if folks want to get in contact with you, how can they contact you? Absolutely. Uh, it's kent.yelverton at ncagr.gov. Uh, our website is uh, ncstatefair.org, and you can reach me through that. Uh, my phone number is area code 919-839-4554. Perfect. Uh, I have to talk to anyone. I uh, love talking about the industry and love sharing what we're going through together. Sounds great, Kent. I know we are all hoping you guys have a great fair this year. Um, I've enjoyed getting to chat with you and getting to know you a little bit. Kent Yelverton, manager of the North Carolina State Fair. Thanks for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fair Game Podcast. Fair Game is a production of Robert Smith Presents. For more information, please visit robertsmithpresents.com.